All right, 1 John chapter 3, 1 John 3. John closed out his letter in chapter 2 by urging us to to abide in Jesus, to make Jesus our home. And, and the reason is, is that as we're making Jesus our home, we're going to have that assurance if he were to come back in our lifetime. That if he were to come back in our lifetime, we hear the trumpet sound like, whoa, yeah, not oh, oh. So he closed it out by urging us, stay close to the Lord, make Jesus your home, abide in Christ. And when we consider how far we have to go to be exactly like Jesus, isn't it amazing that we can even have assurance of our salvation? I mean, think about that. If I were God, okay, which be glad I'm not, if I were God and I were to look down at myself, look it down at Will, I would say, you're not, you need to, I need to turn up the heat. He's not cutting it. He's not towing the line. He's not making progress like he should. I'm not going to give him assurance. I'm going to, I'm going to try to whip in, in the line. But the Lord, he promises to us that we can have assurance that we are his that we can have assurance of our salvation, even though we still have so far to go. Isn't that amazing? Well, in chapter 3 now, John is going to command us to consider the wonder of God's love for us, that he would do that, and then to realize what God has promised we will be someday, and then to respond appropriately, how that confident expectation of what we're going to be because of his love for us, how that should be more than enough motivation to respond, to want to be more like Jesus, and to become more like Him each day. So, 1 John chapter 3, we begin in verse 1. It says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world does not know us, because it does not know Him. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him. For we shall see him as he is. And every man that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. So here we have this initial call to consider the Father's love. The word behold, it means you must pay attention to this, or you must take notice of this, or you must consider this. And he says we need to consider is what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. The phrase there for what manner, we usually would say, well, what kind of love? But it's more than that. The word here means from what foreign country. That's how the word's normally used. It speaks of something that's not our norm. It's not in our culture. It's not in our experience. It's something out of our experience, something foreign. John is saying here that having assurance, the assurance of your salvation is a blessing God wants you to have. But before we move on, we need to stop to consider the Father's out-of-this-world kind of love, because it's not of this world. It's not in our experience. I don't know if the, the Jesus Revolution movie inspired me, but you know, I titled the sermon, God's Far-Out Love. But the idea is that concept that it's, it's not from here. It's not from here. In fact, the word for love here is that word agape. You've probably heard that if you've been in church for any length of time. We use that word all the time to talk about God's love. What is agape? The reason we use that word is because the Greek literature of the time throws little light on its distinctive meaning. That's not a word they use. If you were talking back then, you didn't hear the word agape often, and it didn't have any distinctive meaning to it. 
But the New Testament writers decided to take this word that didn't really have any special meaning in the Greek language, and they decided to choose it to describe something different than the love that flows from human beings. You might have affection for people and love for family or friends or things, but none of those words adequately describe God's love. And so they pick this word, agape. It is not motivated by superficial appearance, emotional attraction, or even sentimental relationship. It isn't based on pleasant emotions or good feelings that might result from the bond you might form with someone or some attraction you might have to them. Now, none of those things are evil in and of themselves. It's not wrong to have sentimental love for a family member or a child or even emotional attraction to somebody. If you're married, I hope you have some of that. Some of you are like doing the awkward laugh. (laughs) They're not bad. That's not what I'm saying. But those words, none of those words, describe God's not-from-this-earth kind of love. You see, agape love is the love of choice. It is the highest kind of love. It is the noblest kind of devotion. You see, agape chooses as an act of self-sacrifice to serve the recipient. It is unconditional love and therefore does not depend on attractiveness, emotion, or sentimentality. It is supernatural love called out of one's own heart by the preciousness of the object that's loved and therefore seeks the benefit of the object loved even at the cost of one's own well-being. Agape gives with no taking involved. Behold this agape love, this this out-of-this-world love, not like anything that wells up from our heart, something completely different. He says you need to consider it. And the reason that you and I need to stop to consider the Father's out-of-this-world love is because He's directed it toward you and me. It says, behold now this out-of-this-world love that the Father has bestowed upon us. That phrase that He has bestowed, it's in the perfect tense, which means it's a completed action with ongoing results forever into the future. When it says that His love has been bestowed on us, it means the Father has permanently set His love on us. Think about that for just a minute. We know that God the Father loved the world to the degree that He sent the Son to die for our sins, right? He did that for everyone. Jesus died for everyone. He's not just our propitiation, but He's the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. That's what the Bible says. So, in light of that, we understand that. He died for everybody. God loves everybody. But what John is saying here is that God's love, the Father's love, didn't stop there. He has permanently set His love. He loves everyone. Jesus died for everyone. But He has permanently set His love on believers to the degree that nothing can ever remove it. Nothing. Do you believe that? Because it's true. If you're in Christ this morning, if you have repented of your sins and trusted Christ as your Savior, if you're born again, then God has permanently set His love for you and nothing will ever change that. Do you believe that? 
because it is most assuredly true. If all God did to ever display his love was to send Jesus, it would be far more than we deserve, and it would prove his love towards us. The Bible says in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his love, proves his love towards us, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. But that's not all Jesus did. That's not all the Father did. On top of that, his love is set upon us to the degree that he will keep giving more and more and more out of his love for us for all eternity. Isn't that awesome? Two of you think so. Do you see why John wants us to pause and consider the Father's love for us? Because very often we don't. Crisis comes into our life or something we didn't expect and all of a sudden it's time to freak out, right? Time to panic. Most of the time it's because we haven't stopped to consider the Father's love for us. Now, You can know this is true, what John claims here, because of something the Father has already done for you above and beyond the cross. And John talks about that next. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that with the result of, this is what He's already done because He set His love upon us, that's beyond the cross, that we should be called the sons of God. God's permanent love has done something for every single believer. We now have a different name. We are called the children of God. Now, it says sons of God here, but the word actually just means born ones. It's not masculine here. Remember, there's an importance to sometimes when the word says we're called sons of God. It's why gender matters, especially when you're talking about the Bible. I know that there are those who say, well, I want to make some of these terms gender neutral. No, don't do that. If it's masculine or feminine, you need to keep it there because there are reasons, there are meanings that you lose when you change that. And in Ephesians, when it talks about us being adopted as sons of God, it refers to our standing as adopted sons, and we have all the rights and privileges of a natural-born son. That's how the Bible can call us joint heirs with Jesus. So when that's speaking and he uses that word, it's not saying we're children of God, we're all sons of God, even you ladies. But now here the word is born ones, generically just any child. The concept here is we have a different name. It's not talking about our position per se as adopted heirs or joint heirs with Christ. It's talking about our new name and our relationship to the Father. You see, we are not God's kids by nature. Aren't all people God's kids? No, they're not. By nature, the Bible says we are children of disobedience. That's Ephesians 2, 2. By nature, I, I never had to teach any of my kids to not be like Jesus. All right? When they came out of the womb, all right, I never had to sit down and go, let me tell you how to not be like Jesus. They came out already not like Jesus. I didn't have to teach them how to lie, to be unkind, to be rude, to be mean, to be nasty, to be selfish. I didn't have to teach them any of those things. They came out zooming, all right? And from the moment they were born, if they wanted something, you didn't give it, they made a very loud and clear statement about it. I had to teach them otherwise. We are all, by nature, children of disobedience. And we are by choice children of wrath, Ephesians 2, 3. We're not appointed to wrath just because we're born. We're appointed to wrath because we choose to sin. 
So we came out children of disobedience and we're children of wrath because we chose to sin. When we were able to understand the difference between right and wrong, we didn't listen to the conviction of God. Instead, we just said, I don't want to be like the Father in heaven. I want to do my own thing. So it is not like Father, like Son naturally. But the Father, in His great love for us, when we placed our trust in Christ, He changed our name. We're not children of disobedience or wrath anymore. We are children of God. And He began the process of making us less like what we were and more like Him. He started that process. Now, if you have a King James Bible, it's not in here, but other Bibles, modern translations, will say another phrase at the end here, which is correct, which says, and so we are. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God, and guess what? So we are. We're his kids. No, he's making us more like him. We're becoming like our dad. Someone who is born again will experience the love of God working in them to change them. You, if you're born again, you can't not experience that. It's God's promise and it's God's blessing that he won't leave us like we were. His love refuses to leave us what we were. And as we learned in chapter 2, the person who is genuinely born again They're not going to reject or resist that work. They will be progressing in obedience to God, in their love for others, and in learning the truths of Scripture. And so as a result of that work that God's doing in us, changing us, we will progressively look less and less and less like the world. And so John says, therefore, this is why the world doesn't know us, because it doesn't know our dad. It doesn't know him. Because of this loving work of God to change us, the world doesn't get us. The word there for know, it refers to experiential knowledge. We could try to explain it to them. They might even understand the rationale of we have a religion or a faith or whatever, but they don't get us. They don't get the why. They don't understand the what because they don't know our Jesus. Now, The world here, we studied that in chapter 2, and so just as a reminder, the world here is not talking about the planet doesn't get us. It's referring to the sum total of human life in the ordered world, considered apart from, alienated from, and hostile to God, and of the earthly things that seduce us from God. That's what the Bible is talking about when it's talking about the world. Those who are not yielded to God, those who don't value the things God values. An unbeliever doesn't have to be a monster to not get us. They don't have to be a a bad person in society to not get us. No unbeliever can share in this work of God's love, and therefore none can truly get us until they also know our Jesus, until He becomes their Jesus. And so, our goals, our very definition of life are radically different, even when we might have some of the same values on life. You might have similar political views to an unbeliever. You might have similar tastes to an unbeliever. You might have similar parenting ideas or lifestyle ideas or lifestyle tastes, but you are not the same. We aren't better than an unbeliever, but we are different. 
And so in verse 2, that's what John calls us to realize. He says you need to consider God's love and what He's already done for you, but now you need to realize who you are and what your sure future is. He says, beloved, basically you who are greatly loved, you who have experienced the love of the Father as described in verse 1, he says, now are we the sons of God. Right now at the present moment, not just when we get to heaven, right now you presently exist as a child of God. So just as God's love is an out-of-this-world kind of love, a genuine believer has an out-of-this-worldness to them. There's going to be a part of you that doesn't fit into the world. There's something extraterrestrial about you. Now, that doesn't mean we look different. You know, it's not like people can look around and go, oh, there's a Christian. Look, he's got four heads. But there is something different about us. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, Paul explains this. He says, for our conversation, which word means citizenship, our citizenship is in heaven, from whence we also look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus. Our citizenship isn't here. Okay, you might be a U.S. citizen or a citizen of another country or even have dual citizenship in multiple countries, but that is not where your citizenship is. If you're a Christian, your first loyalty is not to the United States of America. It's to Jesus Christ. Nothing wrong with being patriotic. Nothing wrong with loving your country. But when push comes to shove, your loyalty needs to be with the Lord. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're looking for Him. I'm not looking for the next best president or the next best governor or the next best mayor, whatever. I think it's important to vote, and I think it's important to vote for godly, righteous men. But that's not the fix to the problems. We're looking for Jesus. Our citizenship's in heaven. And note it says, we're looking for Him who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto His glorious body according to the working whereby he's able to subdue all things unto himself. You know, I love that. Because I look at this mortal body that I'm in, and I'm thinking, how are you going to fix this, Jesus? How are you going to take this thing, this thing that I live in every day, and how are you going to make it so I don't want to sin anymore, how I'll love people all the time, and how I'll just, I'll do the right thing all the time? How are you going to do that? Well, he's able to subdue all things unto himself. Amen? Amen. <laughs> it's the good news. Our out-of-this-worldness isn't because we look physically different than other human beings. We're going to see in verse 3 that our out-of-this-worldness has to do with our different attitude, our different conduct. But before getting to that, John pauses to explain that we may not look physically different now, but we will when Jesus comes back. And so he says, listen, beloved, now are we the sons of God. And then he says this, he goes, and it does not yet appear what we shall be. In other words, it hasn't been visibly revealed what we're going to look like, what our existence is going to be like. But he says, we know that, and the word here refers to head knowledge. This is an absolute fact. We know as an absolute fact that when he shall appear, that if he should appear in our time, then we will exist, we shall be, we will exist similar to him, like him. Now, that's a loaded statement. What does that mean? Now, it's repeated all throughout the Scriptures. We read about it in Philippians 3.21 where it says He'll change our vile body to be like His 
glorious body. So we know it's true. It's not just John saying it here. Multiple New Testament writers are making this point. That word glorious in Philippians 3.21, it means a most exalted state or a most glorious state. What does my most exalted state look like? Probably about 40 pounds lighter, more serious. Well, what what does it look like? Well, after Jesus rose from the dead, he still ate food, right? You could touch him, so it wasn't ghost-like. But John chapter 20 tells us that he could appear in a room with a locked door. Tells us he did it twice. So clearly, his new body wasn't limited like his earthly body was, right? So like Jesus, his glorified body, like Jesus, our new bodies, our glorified bodies, will have a relationship to this body, this earthly body, but they won't have the limitations our earthly bodies have. They won't have any of the negatives that our earthly bodies have. People ask me all the time, they'll say, will I look like me? I have to say, well, yeah, I think so. Probably better, but yeah. Will I recognize other people? I, I think I have to say, well, probably, probably. You know, every, every once in a while, if you have grandparents and then you'll see a picture of like when they got married and you're like, whoa, grandma, you know, because our bodies change over time. So I don't know exactly what stage it will be in, but I do think that the Bible teaches that we'll be able to recognize each other. Jesus was hard to recognize a few times, but I don't know if that's because he hid himself from them on purpose or not. So I think if you're looking for somebody and they're looking for you, I think it won't be that difficult to find them. You might be saying, yes, pastor, that's great, but I want the more nitty-gritty. What what exactly does that mean? That we'll be kind of like our earthly bodies, but without any of the limitations. Well, my highly educated and highly researched answer to you is this. I don't know. It's not like resurrected, glorified bodies are just sitting around for us to poke and examine. In fact, unless it was Jesus, right? And he was poked and examined by people. They touched him. He said, touch me. I'm not a ghost. So the accounts of Jesus with the disciples are all that we have to go on. You say, well, why don't we have more than that? Well, God kind of hints that we wouldn't understand if he tried to explain it. Paul talks about this when he mentions, I knew a guy. I think he's probably talking about himself, but who knows. He says, I knew a guy who died and he went to heaven and came back. And he says he saw things that were, would be a crime. It says King James says it was unlawful to be uttered, like it was forbidden. It's not forbidden. The word means it'd be a crime to try to explain it to you with our language. I wouldn't do it justice. And God, I think, hints at that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 35, Paul is fielding questions from the church at Corinth, and some of them didn't believe in the resurrection. And so he fields this question, but some men will say, well, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Sounds like a question we'd want to know the answer to, right? Well, how are we raised up? And what does our body look like? I chuckle when I hear people say, the Bible's not relevant. I'm like, you're reading the wrong book. Well, you got a book that might say Bible on it, but it's not the Bible because this is a question I would ask. And Paul would answer me the same way, thou fool, (laughs) which is kind of harsh. That's in the English that doesn't really translate thou fool. It's a bit harsh. It might be better to say you're not thinking correctly or you're not approaching the question, question from the right angle. 
He says, don't you realize that that which you sow is not made alive except it die? And that which you sow, you do not sow the body that shall be, but bear grain and may chance of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as it has pleased him and to every seed his own body. I might look at a bunch of seeds and they might look very similar to me, but then you plant them in the ground and all sorts of different stuff comes out. Amazingly beautiful compared to this little tiny seed. Sometimes you put an ugly seed in the ground and something beautiful comes out. He says, it's kind of like that. He says, what is going to go in the ground when we die is going to be radically different than what appears. So he says, if you're, you're asking a question from the wrong angle when we ask that question, it's something that I think is really difficult for us to comprehend because we would expect, well, the thing that goes in the ground will look a little bit what comes up. And he goes, it doesn't work that way, just like it doesn't work that way with seeds. And he goes on to explain in verse 39, all flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. I have two birds in the house, not mine, clearly not mine, because one tries to eat me when I go near him, and the other one, if I have her, she wants to be with somebody else. They're beautiful birds. Love them. I don't want to be a bird. They're not smart. I sit down with the one that wants to eat me, and I'm like, listen, I'm really and truly one of your only friends. <laughs> Desiring to bite me is not wise. It just attacks the cage again and again every time I come near. Not smart. The other one, she just like, she'll fall out of her cage and go to the bottom, and she'll just walk back and forth and chirp like, you going to help me? I'm like, there's a ladder right there. You got feet, you got wings. You can do stuff I can't do. Don't want to be a bird. I grew up with dogs, love dogs, love my birds, love dogs. Don't want to be a dog. Different kind of flesh. What's going to come out is not what's going to be planted in there. Verse 40 in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says there are also celestial, heavenly bodies and then bodies terrestrial, earthly bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. This body was fashioned to operate in this atmosphere, breathes this air, lives on this earth, interacts with other people and other things on this earth. It's made for that. It's glorious. It's fascinating when you look at the human body. I, I've been to multiple doctors over different things when stuff pops up, and you, I'll ask them questions. I'm like, I'm like, I never heard of this thing. Like, how can this, like, what is this? And they say, well, this is a rare disease or it's a rare situation. You know, sometimes, you know, just happens. And, and this is always the thing I've heard doctors say. They say, you'd be shocked at the amount of things that, that can go wrong in a human body, how many times they don't. With the amount, the odds, with all the parts that are working in a human body that more things don't go wrong, they all say the same thing. It's amazing. It's amazing that any of it works. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. There's glory here, but it's not the same glory as the celestial one. It'll have a different glory. It will be designed for an atmosphere that's beyond how we interact in this world. There's a glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption it's raised in incorruption. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, but it's raised a spiritual body. 
that we are going to get new glorified bodies, it's explained everywhere in the Scriptures. But the explanation we're given only gives principles and ideas, not specific details. Sown in corruption. This body, when it dies, it's going to go into the ground and experience decomposition. But the new body that I get will never decompose. I mean, this one's decomposing while I'm alive. That's why we all need baths every day. But that one will never… I guess we won't need baths in heaven. Take a shower for pleasure only then. It's sown in dishonor. It's not, if, if the Lord tarries and, and I die, it's not going to be the best looking me that goes into the grave. But it'll be raised up in honor and glory. Sown in weakness. Usually, most of us, when we go and we pass, our bodies are laid into the ground. It's, they're lifeless. You know, the idea is it's not in strength, not in our prime but the one that's raised up will be raised not in weakness, but in power. These are the principles, the ideas that we have, even though God has chosen not to reveal the specifics. So, while we don't know all the details, we do have something to look forward to. John and the other New Testament writers, they say over and over again that if we're not sure it's worth it, all you need to do is look at Jesus. God's promise to us is that we'll be as good as that, at least, And when I read about Jesus' resurrected body, it sounds awesome enough to me, so I'm ready for the upgrade. How can we know this will happen? Well, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 50 says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption inherit incorruption. These bodies can't see Jesus in His full glory face to face, but our new bodies will be able to do that. And so John explains, how can we know that this is true? He said, for we shall see Him as He is is. In Revelation 1.17, John, the guy who wrote this letter, when he saw Jesus, his body couldn't handle it. Read it. John, Revelation 1.17, it says, and I collapsed to the ground face first, and he had to be revived by the Lord. His body couldn't handle seeing Jesus face to face. These bodies aren't designed for that, but a glorified body fixes that problem. In 1 Corinthians 13 verses 9 through 12, it says, For now we know in part and we prophesy in part. I'm glad you guys come each week to hear me teach. I'm glad you come to the various Bible studies that are going on here or at the home fellowships throughout the week and you listen to the people share and God speaks into your life. I'm glad that we have the gift of prophecy, but man, I don't have everything you need. I I make mistakes. The prophecy that takes place here is in part. We know in part. You're still learning. I'm still learning. We're all still learning. Right now, we see through a, a mirror that's kind of cloudy. It's kind of fuzzy. But 1 Corinthians 13 says, then we'll see face to face. Then we will know even as we're known. You see, when we get our new bodies, there will be no bar to our intimacy with Jesus. We don't need to hide our face in shame. We won't need to cower in fear. And He won't need to shield us from His glory. Doesn't that sound awesome? And by proxy, if we know him, even as he knows us, if there's no fear and no shame, by proxy that means there will be no bar in our intimacy with each other. If there's no fear and no shame with Jesus, then there will be no fear and no shame with each other. Every relationship won't just be safe, it will be meaningful. 
Doesn't that sound like a wonderful thing to look forward to? Don't have to worry, because no one's ever going to think anything negative about you. You're not going to like, you know, you're up in heaven, and you're like, oh, I'm going paint to the, paint the house, you know, and you go and you paint the house. You don't have to worry about the neighbor going, did they really pick blue? <laughs> you don't have to worry about that, because every one of your neighbors would be like, cool, I hate blue, but I like you. That's why Jesus' return is called our blessed hope. We're going to see him face to face with no fear, no shame. And that expectation of what is coming, that we're going to see Jesus face to face, experience him face to face, no bar to our intimacy with him, that expectation of what's coming, it should have a powerful impact on how we live now. And so John says, listen, you need to consider God's out of this world love for you. You need to realize who you are. And then thirdly, you need to respond to God's promise. He says, and every man that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. Jesus is pure. Every man and everyone who possesses this confidence, the word for hope there, it means to look forward with confidence to that which is good and beneficial. I love what one of my Bible college teachers said about this word. He said it describes that which is yet future, but is absolutely certain to happen. When I talk about hope, I will say things like, I hope it doesn't rain today at the beach. I hope we've got bought enough hamburgers. I hope I don't drown anybody. <laughs> hope I don't lose my glasses this year. Right? But there's absolutely no surety that any of those things won't happen. This word refers to something that's absolutely certain. Every man, every person, every believer who's convinced, they're convinced, assured of their Father's love and are convinced, I'm going to see Jesus face to face with no bar to our intimacy. Everyone that has that confidence and your confidence is in Him, it's in Jesus. Not, when it says everyone has this hope in Him, it's not in me. It's my hope's in Him. My hope's in his finished work on the cross, not my righteousness. My hope's in what he did, his promise, not my ability to do everything right. Everyone that has that, who has set their hope on Jesus, seeing him face to face, has an effect on you. If you're here this morning and you're not sure you're saved, if you don't have the assurance that John is teaching about, you won't be able to look forward to this beautiful future with confidence. You won't. And when you're not convinced of the truth of God's love in verse 1 and the promise of seeing Jesus face to face in verse 2, you're not convinced that applies to you. When that's the case, you'll be more focused on making the most out of your present situation on earth instead of drawing near to the Lord. It's a fact. It's a fact. If, if you're sitting here and you're just going, I don't know if I'm going to heaven, you're going to invest in here. You're going to be like, I'm going to make this the best it can be, even if it means disobeying the Lord. I'll be much more concerned with preserving my well-being than I will be with stepping into God's plan for my life. And this double-minded approach to Christianity causes a believer to seriously struggle with worldliness. And you know what, guys? Worldliness is different than just the everyday temptations we all battle. Right? Every one of us wakes up in the morning, and maybe you don't do this, but I do very often. I wake up, rub my eyes, you know, finally drag myself out of bed, look in the mirror and go, it's still you. <laughs> You're still here. Not dead yet. 
You know, that's how I wake up. The old man's just waiting for me, and he's like, ready to rumble? And every day I have to choose to deny myself, take up my cross, follow Jesus, right? To tell myself, go, you don't, you're not in charge today. Jesus is in charge today. I'm taking up my cross, following him. So get back, back under the water. I buried you years ago. Get back in the water. Worldliness, though, is different than that. In addition to just the regular everyday temptations we all battle, worldliness is where you're double-minded on what you love, on what you want. And when you don't have assurance of your salvation and you don't have this absolute confidence that I'm going to see Jesus and that's awesome, if it's just kind of, it's okay, you're going to struggle with worldliness. In contrast, when you're convinced that this is your future, you're convinced of God's love for you, the Father's love for you, it affects how you approach life in a good way. It says, every man that has his hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. And the word purify, it's a really simple word. It means, it means to take a bath. But here it refers to like a moral bath. The idea is you're, if I go out and I get dirty in the yard, I'm not going to come to the dinner table dirty like that, at least not in my house. I need to go take a shower. I need to go get the dirt off. And that's what this word refers to. It means to continually wash off moral impurity. Every man that has this hope in him is continually washing off that stuff. Just as. So to what degree are we doing this? Not tolerating any dirtiness on us morally? To what degree? It says just like Jesus is pure. How pure is Jesus? We had no, the word here pure means without moral defect or blemish. He was perfect. Jesus never sinned and never will. His conduct, his character, and his attitude always is and always was perfect. Now, that's what we're going to be like when we get our glorified bodies. But while we're stuck in this mess, while we're stuck in our earthly bodies that are tainted and tempted in our conduct, character, and attitude, when we have assurance of God's love and of God's promise, even though we're stuck here, we're continually dealing with any conduct, any character, or any attitude that isn't like Jesus. It's what a believer does. We're dealing with it. And so I ask you this morning, are you absolutely convinced that the Father loves you? Are you absolutely convinced you're going to see Jesus face to face someday? Because if you're struggling to wash off the conduct and the character and the attitudes that aren't like Jesus, if you see the dirt and you're kind of like, ah, it's not that bad, or ah, I don't really want to deal with that right now, or I kind of like that grease stain. That's not really a grease stain, you know, it's a beauty mark. If you're having those kind of mental gymnastics with sin, with disobedience, with any character, conduct, or attitude that's not like Jesus, have you considered that if you're struggling with that, have you considered that it might be because the answer to the question of whether you believe you're convinced God loves you, the Father loves you, or are you convinced that you're going to see Jesus face to face? Have you considered that the answer to one or more of those questions is no? Have you considered that you might be more concerned with making life comfortable in the here and now than being excited about Jesus because you've never taken the time or you're not taking the time to consider just how much the Father loves you? As a young man in my 20s, I I found myself blaming God for my lack of purity. Oh, I never phrased it that way. I, you know, I wouldn't be like, God, this is your fault, I'm this way. 
But I would cry out to God in my struggles and temptations. I would say things like, God, why aren't you changing me? Or why am I still having these struggles? Or how long will I have to battle these temptations and keep failing? And I remember one day, God's still small voice whispered to me with, oh, so much gentleness. And he said, Will, you're going to struggle with these things as long as you keep blaming me for them. Purity is a byproduct of knowing I am loved and then loving him back. It's about a deepening relationship with Jesus and with our Father. Therefore, I need to own my impurities, not asking God why he hasn't changed me or how long it will be before he delivers me, as if the problem is that there's some unwillingness on his part. He's never unwilling. And so, we have that verse from James 4, verse 8, that famous verse full of gentleness and just cotton candy and all the nice stuff. James says in verse 4, 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify you hearts, you double-minded. Bro, chill out. You know what makes those words even more heavy? He's not writing to a group of Christians who are carnal. James is writing, if you go to the start of the letter, he's writing to a bunch of Christians who are experiencing persecution. They're losing their lives, some of them, losing their belongings, their property, because of their faith in Christ. John, um, James, I'm sorry, he says to these believers who are struggling because of persecution, he says, listen, I know you've been through a lot, but there's an amazing future waiting for you So stop being double-minded in how you're approaching your trials and live for the sure future that's coming. Now, if James can say that to people who are getting martyred for their faith, surely we can listen to it. If he can say heavy words like that to people who are being martyred for their faith, surely there's an application for us. I don't know where you're at this morning, but if You've got a double-mindedness as it regards if Jesus is worth it, if Christianity is worth it, if obeying God's worth it. I want to urge you with the same words that Peter did that we read in our scripture reading as the worship team comes up to close us out. In 1 Peter 1 verse 13, he says, wherefore. You want to ever see a wherefore or therefore? Find out what is therefore or wherefore. Where did we come from? Well, earlier in chapter one, he says, we've been given life incorruptible. We got heavens waiting for us. We've got all these blessings waiting for us. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. The battle's here. Sober up, he says, and hope to the end. Put your hope, your expectation, your confidence for the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ when he comes back. And do it as obedient children. You got a dad now. You're not children of disobedience or wrath anymore. You're children of God. Be obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conduct. Our God is different. He's out of this world. His love's out of this world. And he's seeking to make us more like him each day. And so concerning the challenges you face each day, gird up the loins of your mind, sober up, 
Take time to consider how much the Father loves you, that he would bless you with the gift of assurance that you're going to be with Jesus forever. See him face to face. Embrace the future that most assuredly waits for you so that you can live properly here and now. Amen? Let's all stand. Lord, you gave us this amazing letter where John lays out these tests. He says, hey, this is what a Christian is. And, and now that you pass these tests, be assured of your salvation. Stop letting the enemy condemn you. And then abide in me. Abide in Christ. So Lord, you've reminded us of why we should keep abiding in you this morning because you, your love is out of this world and it's directed towards us. You've set it upon us. And Lord, we want to realize the future we have, that we're gonna be with you someday, get a new body, and see Jesus face to face. Lord, we have this hope, and with it, we give you our lives. I pray for my dear brothers and sisters this morning, Lord, that you would just show them you're worth it. Show them, Lord, that it's worth it to follow you. Lord, there may be some here struggling like Asaph. He said, man, I look at the wicked, see how they prosper, and I think, is it worth it to serve God? Lord, remind us it is because of the truths that we read here, that we would cling to that, and that hope, that expectation, that assurance that I'm my beloved's and he is mine would have a purifying effect in our lives, that we would be those who are regularly yielding to you and the work you want to do in us so that we can be becoming more like you each day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.